on this edition of the Iowa Business Report. In terms of Iowa, we actually do find that the return to education for Iowa is relatively low compared to the rest of the nation. How much you make depends in part on education, but even more on where you live. An Iowa State researcher shares his findings. Details on how one employer is trying to keep the workplace safe when team members return. And you'll learn about an Iowa business bringing the latest technology to farm fields. This is the Iowa Business Report for the first weekend of August 2020. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at iowaabi.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Last week on this program, we introduced you to a new survey commissioned by the Thomas B. Fordham Institute titled, What You Make Depends on Where You Live, College Earnings Across States and Metropolitan Areas. The national study was conducted by an Iowa State University Associate Professor of Economics, Dr. John Winters. We spoke about his findings and what they tell us about education and assumptions. We're interested in education and thinking about, well, should young people invest in education? Why do they invest in education and what kind of education should they? But we don't always give enough emphasis to the where. Where should they invest in education and where are they going to work? My background actually is kind of in regional labor economics. I'm very interested in the where, how the where interacts with labor outcomes. And I've done some other research to help me think about this for a while. But the question is, okay, well, if I go and get a college degree or get a specific educational credential, what's the result going to be? What's the return? What's the benefit going to be to me? Certainly location does matter. There is a disparity between rural and urban. Explain why that may be and how Iowa fits into the national average or norms with regard to that metric. So one of the things that we're seeing is the return to, say, a college degree is actually much higher in larger metropolitan areas and it's smaller in rural areas. For example, you know, if you go off to New York, the return to a college degree is better than, say, in Iowa. Part of that, it has to do with the job opportunities. There are certain jobs that are available in big cities that just aren't available in smaller areas. And so that that's, you know, certainly one element. You know, if you want to take it to the rural areas, certainly there's opportunities, say, in healthcare and education and some types of jobs. But certainly, um, you know, some of those opportunities just aren't there. In terms of Iowa, we actually do find that the return to education for Iowa is relatively low compared to the rest of the nation. It's still a good investment, though. I don't want to undersell it. Education is still a pretty good deal in terms of the increased earnings power relative to high school, but it's not as high as many other states. Is there a factor of cost of living in there? Because obviously, if there's a job in a major, shall we say, northeastern city, my presumption is the cost of living there is higher than it might be in Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, or any other Iowa metro area. Yeah, absolutely. And, and cost of living is actually something we thought a lot about, and it's actually kind of difficult to fully account for. Part of what we do is we're, we're talking about the college earnings premium, so we end up comparing really the relative earnings for a college graduate relative to high school, and we also do some analysis with uh, associates or people with some mid-level credentials. If you think about, well, the college-educated worker has to pay the cost of living and the high school-educated work, worker has to pay the cost of living, then in some ways it kind of nets out. Both whether you're high school education or college has to pay the higher cost of living. So we focus on kind of the relative 
income differential, that means, you know, are you thinking about where you should live or whether or not you should invest in education? Certainly those things might differ. You're absolutely right. You go to many larger cities, especially on the coast, the cost of living is higher. So, you know, there's certainly there's a lot of young people from the Midwest and, and, and other areas that are less expensive that say, hey, uh, I'm actually getting a pretty good deal here, even though I'm not making as much money. The cost of living is lower. Maybe the amenities are, are ones that I really enjoy and appreciate. So, it, you know, it is a pretty good deal in the lower cost living area for many people. What I found interesting when I looked at the Iowa numbers, if I'm interpreting the chart correctly, there was very little difference between high school educated, those with some college, those with an associate's degree. Very little difference in income. The jump came between those levels and those with a four-year degree, something like a $20,000 per year difference, which is no small amount. But then you also have to pay for the college education in there, too. Did that track consistently in other states? In other words, was Iowa's numbers, as I've just represented them, similar to other states, or were we kind of out on an island somewhere? No, what you're describing is correct. And and certainly there's some variation across states in that, uh, in terms of the jump between less than four-year credentials and then the four-year degree. I would say if you compared Iowa to more similar states, I think you kind of see, you know, somewhat similar pattern there. And part of that, quite honestly, is it may have to do with the type of two-year degrees that, are, that people are investing in. We also, like I said, do have some analysis of people that don't even have a, a two-year degree, but they have some other college education, uh, which is actually a difficult group to, to really classify because it includes people that have like a specific credential or specific like educational license. Uh, and also some people that, you know, maybe started a program, maybe they have three and a half years of college or, you know, however many and, and didn't actually earn a degree. But you're right that we do see that pattern where, at least in Iowa, you don't see a big jump until you get to the four-year degree. And that, that's true in a lot of other states, too. If you expect to want to live in a rural area the rest of your life, think about what are the job opportunities and is that four-year degree going to help me get a good job or, or you know, start a business? If you're willing to move to a, you know, a, a little larger metro area, even within your state, certainly that does open up more doors. Uh, I, I still would say, you know, we haven't talked about college major much. Uh, you still want to be mindful. And unfortunately, we don't dive into that in this particular study. There's some other studies out there. The major you, the college major you pursue does affect your earnings as well. So obviously some degrees, you know, provide more um, like STEM skills and, and, and economic skills, financial skills that maybe help you get a job that, that you know, is, is going to be higher paying, whereas others, uh, you may not start off, uh, other majors, you may not start off with the same salary. So Certainly keep in mind that that there's still plenty of variation even within what we're looking at here. That's all very appropriate to point out because it's not just a binary choice between high school and four-year degree. There are plenty of options in there with plenty of jobs, and maybe that is kind of the the takeaway to some degree. So many of our K-12 schools are programmed, if you will, to suggest one path, and that is college, four-year college degree, and that isn't for everyone. Yeah, no, and I definitely agree with that. And certainly, I think it's tough because when we try to think about, well, uh, should high schools be more involved, you know, in, in vocational education, technical education? Part of the challenge with that is that we often don't really know, well, what are the technical skills that people are going to need 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I think a lot of schools would like to help, you know, in, in students with that. To some extent, we know that math and reading and sending people to college, we have a better idea of, at least from the educational uh, education we have a better idea how we can prepare them for that. Uh, obviously, there's some room for improvement, but we have, I think, if we think about high school, if that's going to be the end and we're going to do career and technical education, 
then we really have to get it right. We really have to make sure that we're getting them the right skills. Like I said, there's not necessarily a ton of confidence that we know what the right skills are. Well, that's an excellent point. And I don't mean to be flip, but two plus two is going to equal four. We know math. We may not know the technological innovations that would lead welding to be very different today than it was 30 years ago. Let me ask you finally, you obviously had an interest in this. You obviously had some thoughts about what you might find. What surprised you the most as you compiled this data across the country? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that was kind of discouraging, um, you know, I, I've done enough work on this uh, related stuff before that I knew as far as we also to do some analysis looking at differences by race and ethnicity. So we kind of knew that, you know, there's going to be some gaps. Uh, so blacks and Hispanics, we expected would, would have lower earnings than whites. But one of the things that was maybe particularly discouraging is that the, the college earnings premium, there's still a premium across all racial ethnic groups that we examined. But the premium is a lot smaller for those minority groups. And so that's really kind of an open question. It, like I said, it was kind of surprising that the college earnings premium was not as significant for, for those groups. Like I said, kind of surprising and kind of discouraging and certainly something that I'm interested in thinking about for the future research. And hopefully, you know, maybe some other people have even greater ideas about. Dr. John Winters, Associate Professor of Economics at Iowa State University. We spoke via Zoom on July 14th. The full report can be viewed at FordhamInstitute.org. Still to come, rules for returning to work and merging drone technology with planting of cover crops. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. Iowa's manufacturers have shown pride and commitment during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Mike Ralston of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. Whether retooling their plants to make face shields, masks, and other needed supplies, or providing pay and benefits for workers during a slow economic time, these businesses are the foundation of our recovery. Learn more at iowaabi.org. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. No doubt your workplace has undergone some changes since the COVID-19 pandemic began earlier this year. It may include wearing a mask, limiting travel, putting up physical barriers, and more. Every business is different, and how each business handles things varies. Some workplaces are requiring that returning workers sign off on an Acknowledgement of Responsibility form. The form starts by the employer pledging to put health and safety of the employees first and to take various steps to minimize the risk of contracting COVID-19. But no workplace is virus-free, and it wasn't before the pandemic. The employer asks employees to help in safety efforts by requiring the employee to take his or her temperature every day and to not come to work if the temperature is above normal. And if it reaches 100.4 degrees, to not return to work until 14 days after a return to normal. The employee is not to come to work if he or she has had contact with anyone exposed to COVID-19 for 14 days after that contact. The employee is not to report to work if he or she has traveled to any country or area subject to a COVID travel restriction within the previous month. 
Social distancing is also required, which they define as 25 feet from a co-worker. And if closer than 25 feet, a mask must be worn. Regular hand washing is required, as is regular sanitizing of each employee's work area. And, of course, the employee is not to report if he or she is exhibiting common COVID-19 symptoms. In addition to fever, that might include a cough, shortness of breath, loss of smell and or taste, fatigue, muscle aches, chills, shaking, and or persistent headaches. Now, this acknowledgement that I've shared with you is from one employer based outside of Iowa. It's just an example, but it points out the need for clarity between both the employer and the employee about expectations given these unique times. It's a difficult conversation for some to have, but better to have it now than when it's too late. Coming up, putting technology to work on the farm. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org. In this week's business profile, we'll introduce you to Tom Leichen of Arrow Cedar LLC, based in Garnavillo. Arrow Seeder builds drone seeders to carry out cover crop seeding, maximizing efficiency of the process. The drones can be used anywhere, but in particular in areas where land-based equipment cannot be used or where manned aircraft is not economical. Farmers need practical solutions and real solutions. As cover crops is a relatively new industry, we were looking at different ways that those can be applied in a more efficient and effective manner. So a drone came out as a good possibility because it is a relatively safe and efficient way to fly aircraft. We've always been a very conservation-minded family. So our farm here is you know, no-till. We have many terraces around, grass strips, waterways, and so on and so forth. Cover crops, when it was coming in, is, is like a natural solution to solving problems of soil erosion and compaction and, you know, reducing the loss of your topsoil and things like this. We have been proactive in trying to get cover crops onto our land. Then in about 2015 or so that my father came to me and because he knew that I was into robotics and model airplanes and all of these kinds of things. And he said, look, I think a drone would be a good solution to this problem. You know, man crop festers, they're, they're at their limit. They work really hard. It's a very intense activity. And there's just not enough of them to be able to come in and take over this activity over crop spring without a considerable amount of uh, expense to enlarge the fleet. And so that's where we got the idea of getting into cover crops and getting into all of this and then putting it into an automated solution like a drone. First of all, these are not like your drones. Well, I mean, they're similar in what they look like, but a lot bigger. They're scaled up. With agriculture and things like that, it's about numbers. You have to be able to move the kinds of quantities needed for large-scale industry. So we've had to build drones that are considerably larger. The drone that I have and that I'm using right now carries a 30-pound payload. We can normally drop that payload and say about four minutes or so, and then return, do a refill, and get out again. 
in a relatively good scenario, we can probably do about six flights an hour, meaning that at with this configuration that we're able to move around 180 pounds of seed to the land per hour. We are working on larger drones, as this is about numbers, and we you just have to move it as quickly as possible because the time frame that farmers have to apply cover crops is quite short too, so you have to make sure that you do it in a timely manner. And we're looking at all kinds of different ways that we can speed up the turnover and things like that. For me, when I look at a crop dusting aircraft, you know, it looks kind of ugly, but I see it as like a beautiful machine in, in terms of how it's built and the efficiency and the effectiveness of it. But putting down applications onto land is a very systematic and repetitive operation because you're just going back and forth over the field. So it is kind of like a printer, you know, as it goes across the, the piece of paper. And so having an automated solution for this is just kind of a no-brainer. And then on top of that, the way that you have to put it down, meaning that crop dusters have to fly at very low altitude and high speed and things like this, it means it's a very dangerous profession. So an automated solution for this just is cheaper and safer. And, you know, and it's a question of time before they're going to have drones available that will be able to do the same capabilities as any manned aircraft. We're at kind of at the cusp, you know, as long as you can draw a finger-lined map around your, your, on your tablet, around your field, and push a button, it's ready to go. We're required in good sense by the FAA to have, uh, you know, training on where the uh, airspace is that you can operate and things like this so that you don't endanger other aircraft. Other than that, the aircraft itself is just a, a couple of pushes of the button and off it flies. And so I don't see any reason why farmers couldn't operate it themselves with some training in terms of uh, safety and things like this. For example, a good manned crop duster that's new might come in close to or over a million dollars per aircraft. Now, mind you, it does carry a considerable payload with that. My drone, I'm looking at retailing it at around $10,000. So how many drones could I have out there for the cost of one aircraft? On top of that, if you're flying an airplane, then you have to fly out of an airport. And so a lot of your time and efficiency is lost in ferrying back and forth between the airport for your refills and to your location of application. I think right there, that, that shows kind of a big difference. You know, I was doing some math this morning that for the same price of a new airplane, I could have a hundred of my drones operating, which then turns my... 30-pound payload into a 3,000-pound payload for the same thing. Farmers are using cover crops a lot more as a conservation method on their own land. This is a growing industry of plant seeding cover crops. Farmers love their gadgets, their toys. They've got to have the biggest tractor, the, you know, the, the widest seeder and everything else. And a drone just plays right into that. It's high-tech. It does the job that it's supposed to do. And farmers... I think they want to see it working on their land. You know, whether they own it themselves or not, that might be a different question, but they definitely like to see it operating on their land. At this time, there isn't a lot of competition in the market. There's only a few companies in the world that are even doing any kind of crop dusting activities with drones. Most of it is based in spraying activities. We've deviated away from that and concentrated more on seeding activities because we're going specifically after the cover crop market and because there's a little bit more open space. Farming and agriculture is Iowa's blood. There is no reason that we should be importing these machines from overseas to do our work here. We are high-tech people. Farming is a high-tech industry. 
we should be building these machines here in Iowa. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't see why we would have to be importing these. They're not any smarter. They don't have better technology than us. And so we have to build it here and use it here ourselves. Right now, we're just trying to get the first few drones out the door, see if we can get a few sales to private users and things like that. But we would hope that, because based on the interest that we've seen so far, that we could be moving maybe 10, 20, 30 aircraft in early 2021. In the end, I see the drone as one tool that we're going to be using, and we're going to be working on a lot of different things that are going to try to make the whole process a lot more efficient so that it'll be easier for the user to operate either by how the filling is done and how the ground turnover is done so that you can be faster up in the air and things like this. That's quite important for us. So we would see a future of these things flying all over the place and everybody having their land covered by drones. I can see that, you know, maybe in five years, I could see drones flying everywhere. Tom Leichen, founder of AeroCedar LLC, online at aeroceder.com. The Iowa Economic Development Authority recently awarded AeroCedar a $25,000 innovation funding startup loan for product refinement. Thanks to Tim Harwood of Iowa Business Report affiliate KXEL for sharing his conversation with Tom Leichen with us. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. Next week, is all this working remotely leading to a communications breakdown that can actually hurt projects and productivity? That and more next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. You'll also find podcasts of full interviews with many of the folks you hear on this program. They're listed as IBR Extras and IBR Business Profiles. And we're also found on all the major podcast distributors, including Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at iowaabi.org.